When you enrich the lives of your employees through purpose-powered leadership, they'll grow your business for you. Welcome to the Higher Purpose Podcast, where you'll discover how to champion a culture of courage and love. Stop dealing with symptoms and get to the root of the problems in your business. This is the Higher Purpose Podcast with your host, Kevin Monroe. Welcome to Episode 60 of the Higher Purpose Podcast. Hey, it's a joy to have you join me, and I'm grateful that you're allowing me to drop in on your day. This is going to be a fun conversation today, and in late August, I met Nick Tasler when both of us were speaking at the Meals on Wheels America conference in Charlotte, North Carolina. As I sat listening to Nick speak, I knew I had met a kindred soul and someone who has a unique contribution to share with you and the other listeners of the Higher Purpose Podcast. So I reached out to Nick and, well, here we are. I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. Nick's an organizational psychologist, speaker, and the author of four books and four kids, as he puts it. He has keen insights to share on decision-making, and Nick and his family currently reside in beautiful Ponce, Puerto Rico. Without further ado, here we go. Hello, Nick. What a delight to welcome you to the Higher Purpose Podcast. When I first encountered you just a few days ago, I realized you are a person of purpose, and you have some insights to share that will help us as we navigate north in business leadership and life. But before we get into the content of the conversation, and and even before we start getting into a connection with you, this is something I've been doing a lot of lately, grounding it in gratitude, grounding everything in gratitude. So what's something you're thankful for right now? You know, truthfully, there's a long list of things that I'm thankful for. But I would say one thing I'm incredibly thankful for is that I feel like I am getting I've been put in a position and had the opportunity to align my work with my, you know, as you've said, put it, navigating north with my higher purpose. And there's not a day that goes by that I don't, that I take that for granted, you know, because I feel incredibly lucky and fortunate that, that my work is my higher purpose. And granted, I have a lot, I've got kids and I've got a family and I've got a community that I, that I'm involved in. You know, I'm incredibly grateful that I'm getting closer to aligning my work with my higher purpose and I get to wake up every morning and be thankful for that. And I am. So Mm. I'll start with that. Awesome. And so maybe a little later, we'll pop back in and just ask some highlights of that journey. Because I know folks listening, that some of you listening are saying, oh, that's what I want. I want more alignment between my work life and my higher purpose. So we'll come back to that. But Nick, What's something yeah. that feels important for us to know about you that helps us connect with you? Oh, it's a good question. Well, let's see. So I am, uh, <laughs> well, I'm an organizational psychologist. I'm a person who's held many different jobs. So let me start out. For, let me go back to what you were saying before. There's been many times in my life when I felt like, ah, the work I'm doing is not necessarily totally aligned with my higher purpose. But I also want to say, I want to say I'm grateful for that because one of the things that I think is maybe the most valuable life lesson, a thing that I'm still trying to learn, and it's probably close to one of the number one lessons I'm trying to teach my kids, which is that you can't attach 
your sense of purpose and meaning and joy and happiness to your circumstances. Mm. And so I am just as grateful for the times in my life when my work has not been aligned with my higher purpose, when my situation in life has not been joy and gag to use my strengths every day and all the things that we strive for, but kind of the opposite, because it's taught me an even more valuable lesson, which is get off the circumstantial roller coaster, learn <laughs> to be content and find joy and find gratitude in those situations when things are not how you want them to be, when your, your work is not aligned with your higher purpose, when your life is not actually moving in the direction that you want it to be. Find peace, find contentment, find pockets of joy within that. And so in that way, I'm just grateful for those times when I haven't been aligned. And so I don't know if that answers the question of if it helps you relate to me, but I think everyone's been there, right? We've been in those times when we feel aligned. We've been in those times when we feel misaligned. And I'm just like everybody else in that way. No, I think it helps us because one, I love the analogy or the metaphor of the roller coaster because we can all relate to that. And all of us have ridden that roller coaster and are riding it now. Now, the other thing that I'm going to ask, because I got a kick out of this when you work this into your uh, keynote at the Meals on Wheels conference where we met, you drive a minivan. And why do you drive a minivan? Well, Kevin, I'm going to correct you there. I'm going to say I drive two minivans, not just one. <laughs> not at the same time. Though. I don't drive them both at the same time. I'm not that good. Because I have four kids, ages 11, 9, 6, and 3. So, you know, to be honest with you, if you would have asked me 15 years ago, do you see yourself driving a minivan? let alone two minivans, I would have said that's probably not in my future. That was not in my plans. At that time, I was a swinging bachelor with a little two-seat Jeep Wrangler, and life couldn't have gotten any better, so I thought at the time. So that is why I doubt drive a minivan. And if we pull this back into, for me, that's one example of adapting to changes that come your way in life. Sometimes they're not even the changes you expected, not even the changes that the earlier version of you would have wanted. But nevertheless, here I am. Now I wouldn't change it for anything. And I don't have a Jeep Wrangler anymore. I have two minivans. So <laughs> there we are. Well, I thought that part was important to bring in. The family element that you have four children, 11 and under. So when we're talking about some of this, folks go, oh, he really does get this. This is not just theory when we're talking about this. The other thing I want to ask, and I'm thinking back to folks that have been listening to the podcast, go back to episodes. I was talking about 10 ways to live and lead with higher purpose starting now, because you don't have to wait till you're in that ideal situation. So let me ask you this, Nick. Let's see, how can I ask this so it gives you more latitude? I'm not trying to set you up. That how we do whatever we do can have more impact on us living a life of purpose than what we're doing at the moment. Interesting. So, yeah, I think so. So let me get it correct. How we do the things that we do are maybe more important than the actual things that we're doing. Or as important or perhaps more important because it goes back to something you said that there were times you weren't doing work that really felt aligned to your purpose, but that doesn't mean mm -hmm. that you didn't find purpose in it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So I've got a couple, uh, you know, stock phrases that I use with, you know, with people that I'm speaking to and working with coaching, et cetera. A lot of the things I help people with is making decisions. Okay. And I say, one of the ways to shift your thinking about this so that particularly in times of change and uncertainty is, you know, we worry about, are we making the right decisions? And in your term, are we doing the right things, right? That's the what. And I say, don't worry so much about making the right decision. Worry about taking the decisions that you've made and making them right. Okay. And what I mean by that is we're sort of, particularly in times of transition and change, we're all flying by the seat of our pants. We don't know what's going to happen next. So it's impossible for us to know what the exact right thing is to do next, right? The best we can do is say, I've got a good sense for what I value, you know, sort of where my moral and ethical compass is pointing me to. And so I'm just going to make a choice that moves me one step closer to that direction. And then I'm going to do that with, in a way that keeps leaning me toward that direction. So for example, do I take this job or do I take that job, right? And that's what we get hung up on. In your terms, that's the what. Is it right. this job or is it that job? That's the what, right? But I would say, you know, take either job and in either case, no matter which one you choose, ask yourself once you get in there, what can I do to make this job work? What can I do to build connections with the coworkers that I find myself surrounded in? What can I do so that I leave my office every day or sign off for my work every day feeling like I can be proud of the work that I did today, regardless of whether it meets all your high-flying expectations of what you thought the job was going to be and what it, maybe what it's not and what it is and what's the gap between what I expected and what I actually got. Don't get so hung up on that. And regardless of the situation, you're here now. What can you do with it? Another way of putting it, Kevin, is when we find ourselves in turbulent situations, we often spend a lot of time asking ourselves, why is this happening? I'm a good person. Why do bad things, bad situations happen to good people? And the key to successfully adapting to change, the thing that separates resilient people, the most resilient people from everybody else, is they don't get hung up on asking, why do bad things happen to good people? They flip that on its head and they instead ask themselves, what do good people do when bad things happen? And that right there sets them on the path to adaptation when other people are circling around that unanswerable question of why bad things happen to good people. Why did a bad thing happen to me? Bam. <laughs> so let's park there. <laughs> let's unpack that one. I love that, Nick, you know, because so many folks do and dozens or maybe hundreds of books have been written about the why do bad things happen to good people. And, and I think what you're saying is that doesn't lead us anywhere productive usually. So you flip that. Exactly. Unanswerable riddle. Yeah. So what do good people do when bad things happen? Unpack that a little more. Yeah. So basically, the difference is, as you said, it doesn't lead to a productive solution. And so if we unpack that, what it means is, and first of all, I, I want to throw this out here for you and me and anyone who's listening right now. If you've caught yourself asking why do bad things happen to good people, that's okay, right? That is the instinctive, natural human response. Okay, I have asked that question, right? I have asked that question. Yeah, me too. Absolutely. In fact, it's the knee-jerk response that we all ask 
whenever something happens. So all I'm saying is I'm not condemning or convicting exactly. you for asking that question. All I'm saying is once you ask it, bring yourself back around and say, can't stay here. Let me ask myself a better question, right? It's like your frontal lobe, your executive functioning part of your brain needs to step in and say, I get where you're coming from, but we're going to put that question aside and ask a better question. Hmm. And that question is, what do good people do when bad things happen? And so what it does is now it really does shift the kind of the processes in your brain, whereas before you're sort of trying to answer the question of why bad things happen to good people. It's sort of in this like, it's in this abstract, philosophical, logical puzzle kind of, so you stay in the realm of the abstract, I guess is why it's not pragmatic. When you ask, what can good people do? Now, all of a sudden, you're in problem solving mode, right? And you do literally neurologically activate different parts of your brain that have been developed, that have been evolved to answer, productively answer a question just like that. Hmm. So what can good people do? Now I'm thinking about action. I'm not no longer thinking about solving a philosophical conundrum. I'm thinking about steps I can take. And so psychologically, this creates a virtuous cycle. On the one hand, it shifts us over to something that we can actually do, that we can take a step so that we can experience a little bit of progress, which all of a sudden makes this big, hairy monster of a problem feel more manageable. And so we take the first step. And then all of a sudden, we get a little bit more confidence that, okay, and this isn't really what I expected or wanted, but I'm a little bit more confident in my ability to handle it. So what's the next thing I can do? Well, I suppose I could take this second step. And now you did that. And so now your confidence goes up a little bit more. And so anyway, so it feeds on itself. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden, it's sort of kind of like light starts to wash away the darkness in your brain. And you feel like you are capable of getting through this change. Hmm. Hmm. Good stuff. Good stuff. Thanks for sharing, Nick. Now, when I was listening to you in Charlotte a couple of weeks ago, I heard you throw out a name and you talked about things you had learned from one of my heroes and mentors, Victor Frankl. What did you learn about change and even what you were just talking about? Because, gosh, Victor, just tell us what you've learned and where was Victor at at the end of World War II? Yeah, so after spending three horrific years in World War II concentration camps from 1942 to 1945, Franco finally gets released, the war is over, everybody's celebrating, except for the fact that he doesn't actually have a lot to celebrate. Yes, he's still alive, which is more than he can say for his mother, his father, his young pregnant wife, his brother, his best friend, many of the doctors that he had worked with before he got sent to the concentration camps. You know, pretty much his whole community, his family was all wiped out during the course of the war. And so he was in a pretty bad place, in a place of depression. And, you know, what's interesting about Franco is that he was a psychiatrist. So prior to the war, prior to any of this happening, you know, he had worked with something like 20 or 30,000 different people as the head of the psychiatric ward of this hospital, people that were depressed. And now he's the doctor finding himself in that exact same situation, you know, putting the really living out, well, okay, I tried this with other people. Can I learn? Well, now I'm depressed. And so what he learned from this took him months to get there, which I think is another thing Mm. to realize too, that 
you know, it's okay to have a few down months, right? We just don't want to stay there forever. But anyway, so over the course of three to six months, Franco starts to have this realization that even though he had come face to face with change of the most soul crushing kind imaginable, pretty much everybody he loved was dead. He started to realize that all that loss, all that pain, all that change that he didn't want, that he couldn't go back and reverse, it didn't possess the power to control his present or his future unless he gave it that power. And that was fully, fully within his control. He realized, I have the choice about what I'm going to do from this point on. I don't have the choice about what happened to me. I don't have the choice to bring back the things that I lost. I don't have the choice to reverse the change, but I do have the freedom to decide what I'm going to do from this point on. So if I choose to, I can decide to marry a new wife. I can decide to have children. I can decide to meet new friends, meet new colleagues, take care of new patients, work at a new hospital to write new books. All those things are completely within the the realm of my freedom and my capacity and my ability if I choose to. And that was sort of the crux for Franco. For everything he did was you have to take ownership of the fact that it is your choice from this point on. It's not your choice that bad things happen to you, but it is your choice to respond to those things that happen. And he coined this great term that I love that he calls tragic optimism. Tragic Mm. optimism. Kevin, were you familiar with that term prior to this? Well, I'd heard it from Frankel is all. But before we go into tragic optimism, just pause there a moment because I want to go back because I know that someone's listening that's thinking, come on, Nick, really? The past doesn't have to control me unless I let it. I mean, I really am free to choose to let go of the past. What does it take for people to... How have you seen people make that when it was a really painful past? Yeah, yeah. And I want to be clear here. It's not to minimize the things that have happened to you or say, ah, it's no big deal, right? Because clearly losing a loved one or anything along that spectrum, (laughs) it is a big deal. And, And so it's not a matter of saying that, ah, just, you know, get over it. Get over it. Or, or whatever. Right. You know, like that's not helpful. <laughs> that's not helpful advice. And it's also not about a matter of simply forgetting about it and pretending like it didn't happen because that's not what Franco was getting at. And I think modern research shows that that's not necessarily the most helpful way to do it either. But I will say in the last 10 or 15 years, you know, depending on how far you want to go back in the research, maybe 20 or 30 years, one of the things we know that, for example, when people are trying to cope with tragedy, tragic loss, bereavement, etc., one of the things that was always thought by psychologists to be an essential part of dealing with loss and dealing with change was that you have to you have to work through the loss. And you can't see me, but I'm air quoting. You have to work through it. Okay, it actually got a name. It's called grief work. Okay, but thing about grief work is. Study after study shows that grief work doesn't help. What I mean by that is when you go and see your therapist every week and you constantly are being asked to relive the tragedy week after week after week after week, all it does is it keeps you trapped 
in that past. And I don't want to get into, you know, too much historical detail here, but you should know that Frankel was a student of Freud. Okay. And the idea of grief work traces back to Freud. Okay. You should also know that there was a riff between Freud and Frankel, where basically Freud excommunicated Frankel from his psychoanalytic community. He went from being his star pupil to persona non grata because Frankel refused to focus his patients on the past. And for Freud, as everyone knows, it's all about working through the childhood traumas and this happened and, you know, we will spend five to 10 years of therapy decoding your past which might reveal insights, but what we find is it doesn't reveal progress. It doesn't reveal solutions. It might explain why something happened, but it doesn't change what are you going to do about it now, right? And that was Frank's whole focus is there might be childhood traumas. There might be terrible things that shouldn't have happened to you but did, but we can't change that now. So let's focus on the future. And what can we do from this point on? And, that, and that's, that's the trick there. And, and for Frankel at that time, that was really just, it was more philosophy. But what we know from modern research in the, you know, starting in the 80s, there were some researchers that did it and up through the 90s. And then now in the 2000s, we've got a lot of brain research and empirical evidence to say that he was right. Focusing on the past doesn't help people. In fact, the scary thing is, in meta-analytic studies, you know, where they compile hundreds of different studies together, in two out of five situations where people were asked to do grief work, they actually got worse than they were before they started therapy. Well, Nick, so I appreciate you helping us unpack that and untangle that. I certainly wasn't thinking you were suggesting that, but I'm concerned that somebody might hear that. So thanks for Mm -hmm. unpacking that. And if you're struggling with that, we both have tremendous empathy and care for you, but we really do want to see you find that future focus and move forward. So let's go back to tragic optimism when I uh, ask you to unpack that one a little bit. Yeah, right. So, and so first of all, I I want to kind of put an exclamation point on what you just said, which is that in fact, I care. And I think Kevin, you do too. I care so much about you that I'm passionate about not letting you stay in that place of, you know, that prison, that enslavement to your past. So it's not a character flaw. It's simply, I want to see you get better for your sake. But anyway, so tragic optimism. And really the, the idea of that is what Franco was getting at is that fate and freedom are two sides of the same coin. And so what he was getting at is the, the reason it's tragic optimism instead of just plain old optimism is the mindset of the tragic optimist is such that you fully expect that bad things will happen in life. It is part of a normal, meaningful human existence to experience stress, to experience unwanted change, to experience adversity. In fact, Ms. Franco would probably go so far as to say, the fact that you're experiencing adversity probably means that you're living a meaningful life. Because if you never have any adversity, that means that you're not putting yourself out there. You're not taking risks. You're not ultimately pursuing a meaningful life because with a life that's pursuing meaning is necessarily going to come with complication, with challenge. 
And so what he was saying is that tragic optimism is this strong but pragmatic and realistic stance toward an uncertain future, right? We understand that you can't control fate, but you can always control, you always have the freedom to control your response to fate. And that's kind of the crux of the issue. Okay. So the way I heard you say this when we were together in Charlotte, we're never free from change. And you said this a few moments ago, a different, maybe a little bit different, but we retain our freedom to decide how we respond to change. Is that correct? That's right. We're never free from change. We're never free from uncertainty, from stress, from challenge, from adversity. But we are always, always, always 100% of the time free to decide how we're going to respond to that change, to that adversity. And when we focus and fixate on our inability to control other people's decisions, on our inability to avoid you know, the hand that life has dealt us. When we focus ourselves on that, why me? Why is this happening to me? Why are these people treating me this way? Why is everyone else seem happy with their life and their job and I'm not? When you focus on that, you inevitably succumb to bitterness and frustration and ultimately depression and despair. But instead, if you just simply shift your focus to the fact that All that might be true. People aren't treating you fairly. You don't necessarily care for your situation that you're in, but you still have the ability and the freedom to decide how you're going to respond, to decide that you can find meaning and pockets of joy even within this situation. Well, then you're on your way to leading a meaningful and even as tragic as it may seem at the time, a joyful existence. Hmm. Hmm. So, Kevin, if I could add one other thing to that, there's a thing that that Frankel always talks about. It talks about areas of freedom, Mm. areas of freedom. Okay, and I think that's a really helpful thing for people to remind themselves. So what he's saying about is when we talk about being free to decide or free to respond to change, it doesn't mean you have 100 percent freedom to control everything that happens to you from this day forward, right? right? Even though it's future focused, right? right? It doesn't mean even now that you have 100% freedom to control everything that's going to happen. But what he says is that no matter what happens to you, if you look hard enough, you will find areas of freedom, areas in which you Mm -hmm. can choose to exert your will on the environment around you. So you go back to the most tragic circumstance you can find in the Nazi death camps. Mm -hmm. And so what he said in those situations is, so here you are, you're a prisoner within these concentration camps. You have control over virtually nothing. Mm -hmm. When you eat, whether you get to eat, how much work you do, when you get to sleep, everything that happens to you seems 100% arbitrary and up to somebody else. It's not your choice. The point he wants to call out here is even in those situations, some people chose to care for Mm -hmm. the other prisoners. Mm -hmm. They chose to not fight back Mm -hmm. against the guards. They chose to let themselves be mistreated, right? And because there was nothing they could do about it. And so they chose to not let the guards steal their joy, even though they were horribly mistreating them. 
Mm. They, they would beat them. They would withhold food from them. They would not give them clothes in the middle of winter. And what he's saying is that some people mm. found an area of freedom to still choose mm. an uplifting attitude, even within the midst of those horrible circumstances. And that's what he calls the last of the human freedoms, the ability to choose your attitude in any situation. Okay. Now, I love that you're sharing this. And I think if I followed you right that day in Charlotte, you see there are kind of two types of people here? That's right. You have labels that help us understand this? Yeah. 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 I mean, and and I hate to, I hate to throw out a label because labels imply permanence. That's not the idea here. But so basically, sometimes we behave like drivers and sometimes we behave like passengers. And I want to unpack those two terms. So on the one hand, we all know what a driver is, and then we all know what's the person behind the wheel, and then we all know what a passenger is, which is the person who's not behind the wheel, right? Sometimes this has been misinterpreted, probably because I didn't articulate it well enough, but it's been misinterpreted. People would say, I want to feel like a driver, or, or in order to be a driver, you control everything. And I want to call people's attention to the fact that when you think about when you get behind the wheel of your car, and you go out on the road, you're out on the highway, right? I live in Atlanta. I just got a visual, you know? <laughs> what do I control in Atlanta traffic? That's right. That's right. I'll, I'll one-up you. Try Puerto Rico traffic. But uh, anyway, lane lines are optional. I'll just that's put right. it that way. But um, so anyway, it's a great example. And you just brought up that that's my point is – so when I say you're a driver, what I mean is not that you have control over everything that happens to you, because you don't, just like we talked about, okay? You still can't control the guy who's late for work and just decided to cut you off because his urgency is more important than your urgency. You can't control that, okay? You can't control the fact that some people are not paying attention, that some people are simply irresponsible drivers, you can't control the fact that other people do actually have emergencies that you don't know about, and they're not bad people, but they have a situation that you don't understand, you can't understand because you don't know it, right? You can't control the weather. You can't control construction. Okay? But in all of those situations, if you adapt the posture and the, set, the, the mindset of a driver, you are perfectly able to hit the brakes when somebody cuts you off. You're able to choose another route when you know there's going to be construction ahead like there was yesterday, okay? Tomorrow, you can choose a different route. You can look at the weather forecast. You can slow down if there is torrential rain. You can pull off to the side and wait for it to stop, right? You know what I mean? So again, you still do have an ability to choose how you're going to respond to the situation. Now, the passenger really doesn't have any of those choices, Right? They don't take control of any of those choices. They can't choose to break. They can't choose to turn into a different lane or take a different route. And so it's a matter of accepting that kind of like ownership for what you're going to do in the situation, which doesn't mean you control the situation, but it does mean you have the ability and the freedom to make decisions within that situation. You're not a victim, right? I guess is the main point. Yeah. So two summaries here, just make sure I'm following you. One, I'm going to go with the passenger first. The passenger may have the choice of music to listen to. They may hijack that from the driver, right? The serious observation is you may not always have control, but you always have a choice. That's right. Well put. That's really good. So I just think that's such a powerful statement for you listening. 
the things that have happened on your journey are beyond your control. But at where you sit at this moment in time, you have a choice of how you respond, how you navigate that. The other comment that ran through my mind, I thought back to my father who's been deceased for a number of years now, but he taught me how to drive. And, and the one thing he taught me that I still remember to this day and do differently than other people, perhaps, but that's always looking further ahead down the road to anticipate a problem, anticipate somebody doing something foolish, changing lanes or, you know, breaking, not waiting to the last minute to apply the brakes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I'll take that one step further, Kevin. And it's kind of like, you know, it's like the old adage, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. So I'll take that another, okay, if you know there's likely going to be construction ahead or, for instance, you know that you have to go to work during rush hour traffic, it's your choice on when you leave the house, right? <laughs> so don't blame traffic when you chose not to leave until the time you did, right? right? So it happens right. once, ah, shame on me. If it happens over and over again every day, now you've got, you know, you have to start taking responsibility for your situation. And, you know, now that I, I mentioned that word responsibility, I like, I mean, his later years, Frankel spent a lot of time in the United States and he loved the idea that he was a big proponent of claiming your freedom, right? right? He was a big proponent of just that idea of freedom. And so he loved the idea that in the United States, we have a statue of Liberty in New York city. And he said, but you know, the one thing I think you should also have in the United States on the East Coast, if you have a Statue of Liberty, on the West Coast, you should have a Statue of Responsibility because you can't have freedom if you don't have responsibility. And, uh, and I, yes, I love that. And I don't think he was you know, trying to talk about uh, East Coast versus West Coast, but just like it takes both of those. If you're going to accurately right. or adequately right. um, leverage your freedom, there is an element where you also have to take ownership and take responsibility. Otherwise, you'll never get the full, um, you'll never realize the full potential of your freedom. So Nick, I'm watching and wow, our time is getting away from us here. Let me just ask, I've got two questions for you. What would you say to the people right now that are in the throes of making it? What's something you would say to help them make a better decision today than perhaps they've made in the past? Mm, great question. I'm going to give two things, if that's okay. all right. I would ask you to step back and figure out what is your decision pulse, which is what is the thing that you value kind of more than everything else? And actually, there's now that I think about it, there's a free assessment on my website. If you go to nicktasler.com, there's a free assessment for these. Uh, there's eight different categories, different people value at different levels of priority. So for me, more than anything, when I have to make a decision, I value freedom. And so what that means is I'm willing to, if I have to choose, I'm willing to give up a certain measure of security if I can get more freedom. I'm willing to not achieve quite as much as I maybe could have in other situations if I'm able to protect my freedom. Now, other people will turn that around and they'll say, you know, I really I want to be safe. I want to protect my family. And so I'm willing to give up some of my freedom in order to have security. And the idea is not that one is more important than the other, but it's very important for us as individuals to get clear on what do we value the most? Not just what are our five top values, but what is our number one right. top value? And let that be right. the starting point. Okay. 
You can call it your true north, whatever you want to call it. I call it decision pulse. The idea is get specific. When you have to make trade-offs about your life, what is the thing that you want to preserve more than anything else? And let your decision move you in that direction. The second thing is do what I call consult an anti-you. And basically all that means is invite somebody else into your decision process. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a good friend. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's a coach. Somebody else who can look at your situation from a somewhat objective frame of reference and just give you some insight on it that you can't see simply because, not because you're not smart enough, but because you have too much invested in the outcome, right? And so you're bringing all these past emotions, prejudices, and biases into the situation. Go to somebody else and say, what do you think about my situation? And just get that other frame of reference. Consult an anti-you. Okay. <laughs> you mentioned an assessment. So for folks that, and we'll put that in the show notes, I'll get the link. For folks that want more from Nick, where do they go to hear more, learn more, read more? Yeah, you know, I think the best place to start is at nicktasler.com. There's a couple of free assessments you can get on there. There's also some articles. If you're really interested in the conversation that we just talked about today, one of my books called Ricochet, What to Do When Change Happens to You, I wrote it specifically to address this topic. I mean, it's really just about exactly that. What to do when you're in the throw of a ricochet situation, when you thought your life was on track and all of a sudden, pow, you get sent off into another direction. What do you do about that? And it's just kind of like a quick survival guide that goes a little deeper into some of the stuff that we talked about here. So anyway, so those are probably the best places to start. Okay. And then Nick, the last thing I want to ask, is there anything that you want to say or add to this conversation so that it's whole for you? You know, put a bow around it. You know, I think we've covered everything else. I'll say one thing, and this is on a personal note. One thing that I always go back to, a piece of advice, and I can't remember where I first heard it. You know, truthfully, I think it was a pastor that said it. But anyway, when you find yourself in an uncertain situation, the best thing to do is make the next right decision, right? Do the next right thing. Within that simple advice, do the next right thing. It ties in so much social science and empirical evidence on how we know the best way is for people to adapt to big changes and little changes and everything in between. Because all it really means is you're in right now, if you you accept the analogy, you're in the belly of the whale, okay? Mm -hmm. You don't know what's going to happen. You don't know how long you're going to be in there. But if you keep believing that somehow or another, you're going to get spit out Mm. and that there will be a light at the end of the tunnel, Mm. but you don't know how to get there. You don't know what the path is to get there. All you can do in this moment is keep doing the next right thing. And maybe that's doing a nice thing for somebody in this situation. Maybe it's continuing, you know, making an extra phone call. Maybe it's, I don't know. You have to determine what is the next right thing, but don't worry so much about what's going to happen six months from now or a year from now or five years from now. All you can control is what you do right now. So do the next right thing. And when that's done, do the next right thing. I mean, it just gives us that greater sense of control over our situation, helps us put us back in that driver's seat. Yeah. Gosh, I love that, Nick. I love that. And that's the whole thing that I call navigating more, right? Just the next right thing, just keep moving north. 
Nick, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure having you. Yeah, my pleasure, Kevin. Hey, thanks for joining us, Nick. I knew you had something to share with us, and I'm so delighted we were able to share this conversation with you. So what stood out to you from our conversation? I'd love to know that. Here are a couple of things, well, three things that are echoing in my mind or things I'd like to highlight to you. I'm hoping some of you find great comfort in the comment from Nick, which was a paraphrase of Viktor Frankl's idea of tragic optimism. It's not this Pollyanna-ish view of living free from trouble, but it's remaining optimistic in spite of the trouble. And the fact that you're experiencing adversity at this moment in your life should be an indication that you're living a meaningful life. Oh yeah, it reminds me of a song from one of my favorite musicians who, in my opinion, left the planet way too early. Rich Mullins had this song, Bound to Come Some Trouble in Your Life. Ah, you've heard me reference that before if you've listened to the podcast. The second thing I want to call out to you is this idea, you may not always have control, but you always have a choice. Wow, that's profound. Always. So let me ask you, is there an area of life right now that seems like it's spinning out of control and you've lost control? Can you locate a choice in it? Can you find a way that you still have the opportunity to choose how you respond and find something good in it and allow something good to come out of it? Then the other thing that I'd call out to you is this question, asking why do bad things happen to good people, you realize that doesn't help you make the progress you want to make. I love the reframe that Nick suggested and asking a better question. What do good people do when bad things happen? What do good people do when they find themselves in situations like you're in? To use Nick's word, what do drivers do or what do victors do if they found themselves in the situation you are in at this moment. Well, I'm enjoying connecting and conversing with you. Believe it or not, I really do my best to respond to every inquiry from a podcast listener, whether it comes by phone or email. You can email me at kevin at higherpurposepodcast.com or you can pick up the phone and call me at 678-744-5111. Look forward to connecting with you. Hey, until next week, when we connect again here, I encourage you to live, love, and lead with purpose. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Higher Purpose Podcast. Remember, if you ever think that your work could be less ordinary, there's not much between you and something extraordinary. Just 13 weeks and a bold experiment. Find out more at 13weekstoextraordinary.com.